broadcasting live from a mode of transportation in a Mediterranean locale, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I am possibly the greatest podcaster alive. I knew you were going to pull that up right away when you didn't have that be my name in this recording. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness gracious. Well, if that French-Belgian accent didn't tell you anything at home, we are covering the first two Hercule Poirot mystery movies, Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, in preparation for A Haunting in Venice, which will be our next episode. So I'm I'm very excited to get into these weird, weird, weird movies with you, Garrett. They are weird, and to preface a weird main segment with some weird news, we've got a lot going on this week. Starting with a few notable passings, starting with... Bob Barker, absolutely tragic. I know he was he was really getting up there, but I watched an insane amount of his shows, and I've probably seen maybe the best part of Happy Gilmore with him beating the crap out of Adam Sandler about a hundred thousand times. That's definitely a big one. Don't love Happy Gilmore, but I do love that scene. Oh, the Price is Wrong. It's great. I mean, <laughs> come on, Bob Barker, Price is Right, like all ancient ancient texts you're watching that on like daytime tv right absolutely childhood favorite right there you gotta love gsn right match game price is right oh yeah press your luck old school richard dawson family feud you know i'm there yeah that that is definitely the best stuff right there there was a a short documentary I saw a couple years ago about the guy who basically memorized the price for everything that uh, they had on The Price is Right. Have you, have you ever seen that one? Not only am I completely familiar with that, but you have rec-centered that on this show. You got a better memory than I do, Garrett Strother. <laughs> Good lord. I, th- I thought that was such a funny insight into that show in general, but also it just, you know, right after pretty much any time I'm reminded of Bob Barker or The Price is Right, I, I try to just... Find some old ancient episode because there's a hundred million of them that I've still never seen somehow. So it's it's always fun. Well, you know the joke going around right now is Bob Barker got as close to a hundred as he could without going over. That's ah, uh, I'd like to think Bob would have laughed at that. I hope he, I hope he would have because I am. But the blows keep on coming, Seamus, as also famed. Tropical deity Jimmy Buffett <laughs> also passed away because he's so much more than a musician. Than a musician. He has an entire I'm... lifestyle attached to him. Also, this is weirdly kind of the best and the worst time for him to have died because he is so prominently in the meme zeitgeist right now. I don't know if mm-hmm. you know about this. There were a couple of different YouTubers that went around and went to every Margaritaville in yeah, the country I, I, and Canada. I did hear about that. Honest to God, I've never wanted to go to a chain restaurant more than I have a Margaritaville. I've just never, ever had the opportunity somehow, and I I want to so badly. Well, I am much more partial to Cheeseburger in Paradise. Wait, there are... are there? Is that an actual thing? Are there two chains? Yeah, Cheeseburger in Paradise. I don't know if there are still Cheeseburger in Paradises. Okay, the last one, I just looked it up. The last one closed in... September 2020, but there used Damn. to be one in Chicagoland. What? I always assumed you could get the, the cheeseburger paradise was on the menu at a Margaritaville. That's what my assumption has always been. That is that is also true. There used to be one in Algonquin, though, and they had good cheeseburgers, Seamus. Cheeseburger, you have the, to, right? The cheeseburger in paradise was better than the cheeseburger in paradise at Margaritaville. I'll say that. Oh, so you're a connoisseur. You've been to, like, you've, you've perused the different Jimmy Buffett franchises, and you have a, a solid opinion on those. Unwind you lax, Seamus. That's all <laughs> I have to say. Unwind you lax. Oh, my goodness gracious. I mean, you're not wrong. He he is, a, like, a weird Floridian. Wait, is he from Florida, or do I just associate him with Florida? I actually don't know. That's an interesting... Does it matter? That's the real question. I don't think so. I think he, he was a national treasure. I, absolutely. I think... Just having the entire weird cult fan base of, like, everyone's just kind of chill, I think that's the best brand of all time to have. I'm shocked to learn right now that 
people were not aware until he died of his two-second cameo in Jurassic World. That's maybe the best part of Jurassic World. Oh, are you kidding me? Literally the best part of Jurassic World. Yeah, he's like he's like carrying food, running away from his carrying two giant margaritas. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what he's doing. Oh, see, I've blocked a lot of that movie out, but I mean. His panicked running is is gonna just stay up there forever. Would you go to the Elanu Bar, Margaritaville? Where is that? Where where Jurassic Park is? Where where? Oh, that's where that. I thought you meant like I thought you had been googling like what's the closest Margaritaville to our location? No, right it would, now. that's the one at Navy Pier. Is the it's the closest one? There's a Margaritaville in Navy Pier. Why am she I was a fool? Get it together. What am I doing? Oh my god. Alright, next time we're in Chicago, we're going to pay our respects. We're going to pilgrimage to the Margaritaville. But the last passing that we have to talk about today, the most recent on our list here, is a Smash Mouth frontman, Steve Harwell. I was never necessarily a huge Smash Mouth guy, Garrett, but I do know that their music and and a lot of what Steve Harwell brought to like the music culture in the early 2000s it made waves like that that was like the sound of that era and i i might have been a little just a little bit too young at the time to fully appreciate it but i i do a little bit more now i think astro lounge was my lawn mowing album back oh. when i started mowing my lawn i wouldn't say i was a fan but i was a smash mouth like defender Sure, Certainly. Sure. I do think that they have been unfairly pigeonholed as meme music, and I don't think they'll ever be able to escape that because maybe the most meme song of all time is All-Star. And it, I mean, it doesn't help that it is so damn attached to Shrek. The meme of Shrek, I feel like, has also since made a full circle to like, oh no, wait, but Shrek is actually like... A iconic movie and it's like in the library of congress and it's like an important piece of film history or whatever so that full circle is coming back around for everything i think now steve harwell himself is an interesting guy i don't know if you remember over the pandemic smash mouth refused to stop doing shows and oh there was a bit of a controversy when he maybe did a Sea Kyle at one of their performances. What? That is news to me. They buried that, apparently. I mean, I was aware of both of those things as they were happening. I don't know how much those are in the news cycle now. I'm seeing mostly positive things right now about him. But I do think it is worth, you know, there were problematic elements to Smash Mouth's I, kind I of guess there are. <laughs> uh, conservative mindset. Yeah, that is, that is news to me, truly. But, you know, a massive cultural impact, nonetheless. And maybe not the one that Smash Mouth would have chosen for itself. But everybody knows All-Star. Everybody will know All-Star until the day they die. Everybody of our age, at least. Well, all that glitters is gold, Seamus, and only shooting stars break the mold. Break the mold. Yes. We have got a big ol' strike update here, starting off with the fact that, well, one, Netflix head Ted Sarandos is concerned about if they give in to the demands that he will set a standard that Netflix has to do that all over the world, which is just one of the most supervillain things I've ever heard. I was going to say, we I don't know if... Listeners, go back listen to our Meg to the Trench episode, and we were describing, like, the insanely cartoonish villain who's just like, oh, I'll make billions and it doesn't matter. Like, it, that is to feel like the territory we are inching towards of just, like... They're saying every quiet part out loud, but now we realize that they've never been whispering in the first place. They're just like, yeah, we want to screw over as many people as we legally possibly can before they get wise and chase us to the next town or whatever the hell their mentality of all of this is. It's very disturbing. Speaking of, we have a Warner warning. Oh God, boy, it's feel like it's been so long, even though it's probably not. Uh, Warner Brothers is escalating the strike to an alarming degree. The biggest movie left of the fall season, Dune 2, has been delayed from October all the way to March of 2024. And along with this, 
They have shuffled around a lot of their upcoming movie slate. Godzilla vs. Kong 2 has been delayed about two months. And there's a couple of other things in flux there over at Warner Brothers. Clearly, this is a negotiating tactic to try to get the WGA and AMPTP to concede because... Like I said, this is not only really the last huge release left this year, but also it's going to be really bad for movie theaters. It's going to be a really bad thing. Oh, yeah. Other studios follow suit and delay all their stuff. Um, It's going to be like COVID all over again. And if you look at the success of the first Dune, that certainly relied on actors. I mean, you remember Mm -hmm. when... Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya were on the cover of Vanity Fair, and it was crazy, and, you know, it was just two movie stars being movie stars. But that only goes to show how valuable actors are, and that they should be fairly compensated for promoting the films that they are drawing people into the seats for. Absolutely. I mean, in a world where if you're not an established franchise, you've got a 50-50 shot at best to making it in the theater run, something like Dune, which is like a huge history of failures behind it, and it's already kind of a complex piece of material for people to try to jump in on, having no prior knowledge of it, so much of that popularity and the success of Dune came from the people promoting it, getting people excited for like, what is this weird thing that nobody knows what they're getting into? I guarantee it would have been an entirely different story because people just wouldn't have known to go see it. Absolutely. Continuing our Warner Warring here, we also have that Warner Brothers has suspended deals with several high-profile showrunners, including J.J. Abrams, Mindy Kaling, and Bill Lawrence. So... Any shows that they were in the midst of developing with, you know, presumably HBO and Discovery Plus and things like that are indefinitely on hold. And this is a big escalation. This is Warner Brothers basically saying that they don't expect the strike to be over anytime soon and is taking punitive measures against showrunners who are currently striking. They're kind of showing their hand a little bit here with, you know, pushing everything, suspending deals, like really settling in being like all right we're we're we are in this for the long run just as much as you are but the passion of being treated fairly and the the need to have these deals met in a way that is satisfactory to the people actually on strike like you said before it's just going to be a a mess for so long of stubborn studios not realizing how much they need the people that create their content to be on board with things like that and them trying to stretch out like, oh, we're going to we're going to delay everything so that we can drip feed theaters and streaming services enough to say that, oh, yeah, we're inching along. We're technically making profit when they're, well, they're still stiffing the people that need to be working to create their content. This is definitely going to set a precedent, much like mm-hmm. the very things that started Warner Warning on this show Months and months ago, actually, I just remembered recently that our episode 100 Dieselthon was the first time that we brought up anything resembling a Warner Warning, which was the Warner Brothers Discovery merger. Right. Oh my gosh, I forgot about the emergency news we had to throw in there. That initiated a lot of the problems that have led to this strike, so I'm very nervous about the fact that Warner Brothers is once again kind of setting a trend that I think other studios are going to follow, and the end is not in sight for this, I don't think. It's going to continue to escalate until there is some kind of breaking point, and I really hope it breaks the way that we want it to, that actors and writers are going to be compensated fairly and actually be able to live on the work that they do. Well, speaking of trying desperately to live off the work that you do, (laughs) 80% of Disney's in-house VFX workers have voted in favor and are filing for unionization, which says to me that the VFX workers are about to join the strike, probably. I think that's, <laughs> way are that's pretty be. likely. Yeah, with enough of the Disney dangers that we've had in the last couple months have at least mentioned, like, the VFX workers, and specifically with Disney projects, are are not getting a fair shake of it as it is right now. So hopefully they are going to, you know, join the force and 
put a little bit more of the strong arm on these studios that are taking so much time and and honestly weird pleasure out of making like this a long painful experience for everybody involved just like we're kind of on a weird precipice with ai and a lot of other issues that the writers and the actors are striking over visual effects has reached a point of ubiquity where there needs to be proper representation and protections for Mm -hmm. visual effects workers It's important that this is happening right now because, again, Disney is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, visual effects studio in the industry. And if they are voting to unionize and setting a precedent, hopefully others will follow suit. I know there's already a few whispers here and there of a lot of video game union things happening right now. I think that's a little bit more in the pre-phases, so I don't know if I can really say if anything is happening one way or the other. But I think... It is starting to set a little bit more of that precedent, like you were saying, so hopefully we can kind of have a big boom in artists' rights in these really important industry, important to us, and, and I mean, important to the profits that will soon be a lot lower than these executives are used to, so hopefully that'll help them wake up a little bit. It was just Labor Day, and we're in the midst of a massive labor movement in this country that hasn't been seen since the 70s, I would mm. say, something on this scale. And it's necessary. We're an entertainment podcast, but inflation and other economic impacts of very real business decisions are making daily lives of people incredibly hard to navigate and accelerating at a unsustainable rate. Action needs to be taken. Agreed. Speaking of Disney and action needing to be taken, we got a Disney danger, folks! You may find... I'm just throwing in Star Wars sound effects. I didn't know you had a pet R2 unit. (laughs) You like that? You like my my little whistle? Yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. (laughs) Thank you. Just announced that Disney will not be... Not only are they taking shows off of streaming services, they're pulling a real War Brothers here, and they will not be airing its completed Spiderwick series or their in-production live-action 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea prequel series. Now, unlike Warner Brothers, both of these will be shopped to other studios, but who knows if they'll actually ever see the light of day or if this is just a... PR move to say, see, we're trying to get them seen, and then they'll just mm. quietly be vaulted and tax right off. I'm that is what my fear of this decision is as well. Me and you were talking about how weird it is that there's a Spiderwick series in general, but we were like curious enough to see what was going on with it. We have enough weird nostalgia about that. And I, I are you a Twenty Thousand Leagues guy? I, I don't think I ever read that <sighs> or saw it. I'm a huge Jules Verne guy. I love Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I think that movie is, it's of its time, certainly, in its pacing and the mm-hmm. fact that it's kind of a zany little musical, but it's also really good. James Mason is a fantastic Captain Nemo. I think the Disney version of the versions that I have seen is the definitive screen version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and its production design is unparalleled. Actually, Captain Nemo's organ is the organ in the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. That's a little tidbit for you. I would love to see more in Disney's interpretation because there's so many interesting... Again, like the production design is so great. Harper Goff, a Disney concept artist, did a lot of really great work that is really iconic. I think it's the way a lot of people picture 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And so to have the opportunity to go into that kind of sandbox and use those super iconic designs is wonderful. And it's too bad that that, you know, it's too bad that anything's not going to see the light Mm. of day. But the fact that that probably is just going to be shelved forever and who knows if it'll even be finished is a real shame. I'm sad all around because a thing we've been seeing more and more of just like announcement, production shelved forever and super sad tax write-off deal with it is basically the attitude that we kind of keep getting why even make these things if the plan halfway through is to just throw it in the trash for money anyway it seems so weird and reductive and quite honestly it's it's lame if disney is getting me stupid enough to be kind of halfway excited about a spiderwick chronicle series i should be able to at least see it when it's supposed to it's finished like why not it's 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 ridiculous I feel bad for the poor kids that are in it. There's probably yeah. like 11-year-old kids that... 
It was are, like the last Disney Plus thing where those kids are never going to see any of that again. <laughs> like, what is Disney doing? But at least those kids got to see their stupid movie. That's true. That's true. That that, that one was actually on Disney Plus. But, oh, man, it, it, I will be shocked if Spiderwick or 20,000 Leagues goes anywhere. Well, let's move on to our last bit of news. We're having a real, we're, we're having a real upper of a news week this week, Seamus. <laughs> I Janus. know. Suddenly, there is going to be a 30% price increase across all three tiers of PlayStation Plus, which is, that's real steep. That's a real steep price increase for yeah. a service that I think is already, I think especially premium, is already overpriced. Yeah, I had to like, I had to really reckon with that price when I subscribed to premium, but I was like, you know what, it's like basically unlimited games, whatever, I'll, I'll, I don't spend money on video games anymore, basically, since this service has come out. I don't remember the last time I really bought a video game, especially something at full price, but having the base tier be $80 for nothing but the ability to play online and three, I'd say, kind of average games a month, that is insane to me. Most months, I'm lucky if I want to play one of the games on PS Plus Essential. Yeah. Exactly, and if if you have a game that's on PS Plus Essential, that's an online game, you're paying for a free game and then paying to play online, and then if you decide to stop paying, you lose access to the game and the ability to play online. So it's a pretty crazy thing to announce and implement within about a week. Uh, so if you try to do it right now, it is now the, the new price, basically. There was a whole big thing about, you know, people rushing to re-up their subscriptions before the price increase, and then Sony just being like, oh, we don't know what happened. We can't do that right now. Our server's down? That's weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to Sony support, and they're just like, whoopsie-daisies, you're locked into this price, and we can't refund you the credits or whatever that you spent on it. It's stupid. Sony headquarters is making the Galactic Empire siren sound right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, mouse droids everywhere. Everywhere. There's a rumor that the upcoming PlayStation State of Play is going to have some kind of information that's going to make this price increase actually make sense. Well, then they should have saved this announcement for after the State of Play or during the State of Play. (laughs) the, The theory is that they're not trying to spoil the new fun stuff by saying, also, you have to pay a bunch of more money, and they're getting that out of the way now, but... My expectations are pretty low, Garrett. I might have to bail on this uh, premium tier. The only thing that I could see is if they were like, hey, Spider-Man 2 is going to be on premium at launch. Yeah, yeah. They've they've really talked a lot about, like, Sony-exclusive games being day one releases on PS Plus for a while, and we got maybe two of those since PS Plus got revamped. I can only think of Stray. That's literally the only yeah, one it, I can think of. Which, to be fair, I played at launch. Great game. I love that game. But there, there was, like, one other one that was, like, a very nice-looking indie-ish style game that I didn't play. And people said it was really fun, and I believe that. But there's going to have to be some, like, you can download PS3 games now or something announcement coming up. It's gouging, regardless. It's, it's gouging, ridiculous. regardless. They think... Everybody just spent $500 on a PS5 now that they've finally been accessible for long enough, so... Yeah, especially 50% of the PS5s out there. I mean, generous I you know numbers there are digital only. That's people's, like, whole lifeline is basically PS Plus. So, feels pretty slimy to, to tighten the grip like that for literally no reason at the most random point of, of this service being out. It's killer. It's... <laughs> criminal it's it's murder it's murder i'm glad you and i know what time it is all aboard seamus uh get that mustache comb ready let's get on the orient express baby For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about the first two Kenneth Branagh Hercule Poirot adaptations, Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. Seamus, we'll just knock these out together, I think, right? I think that's a good idea. In my mind, they are basically like turning into one movie anyway, so I feel like it's good to just dive into it. Why don't you give me some background on what your exposure to Poirot and these stories and Agatha Christie was before all this? 
literally zero. I think I mentioned it um, at the end of last week's episode. I've got that one weird episode of Doctor Who where he meets Agatha Christie in real life, and that's like my full knowledge of her mysteries, and I didn't really even know a single thing about Hercule Poirot until we watched Orient Express together last week. These movies weren't even on my radar when they were coming out. I saw, and we talked about it a lot, I saw that Orient Express trailer a thousand times when it was coming out the oscars and the super bowl and every other (laughs) major commercial event had like a thousand runs of that movie trailer i knew less about death on the nile than i did about murder on the orient express but overall i was just going into it more or less blind with you when we watched these together for the show but i know you have just you have a little bit more of a history with this character and these mysteries and an unhidden opinion about Agatha Christie. <laughs> so you, give me give me a little bit more about that. I, like you, had not seen either of these, but unlike you, I have read several Agatha Christie stories, including multiple ones featuring Hokio Poirot. As I've said many times on this show, cannot stand Agatha Christie. I think that she <laughs> is a hack. I think that... She has a talent for character. Her mysteries are underwhelming at their most innocuous and, frankly, unfair at their worst. They are exploitative of the reader's expectations, and they hoard crucial information from you so that you are completely unable to play along with the mystery. You just have to wait for Poirot or whatever detective she is using to lay it all out for you at the very end, and I don't think that that's a very good way of writing a mystery novel. Now, I will say this sometimes, you know, there is the occasional story where she doesn't pull out those tricks, and I go, oh, that was actually a better Agatha Christie Mm. story than I was expecting it to be. Poirot, I think, is a charming character, though, and I think Branagh's portrayal of him, actually, is a lot funnier and a lot more endearing than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I had no idea. I thought we were going in for, like, a like a Sherlock Holmes, you know? And it is very, you know, the idea of, like, a hyper-aware detective who's, like, world-famous and does insane mystery stuff, whatever, sure. But... I didn't expect him to be like a like a little cute boy, like a little Belgian. I mean, and maybe that's Branagh specifically doing that. I don't know how accurate that is to the books of like the weird moments of levity that his character has that he, he has in both of these movies. But I really, really enjoyed it. And it, it kind of betrayed a lot of my expectations because I thought we were, again, going into a little bit more of a straightforward, I'm a detective, I do detective things, I'm going to detect real quick. But he, he's got like all these really fun quirks and pieces of personality that I didn't expect at all going into a movie that I knew was just about a famous detective. I think his traditional characterization is less endearing, less cute. Like, sure, he is quirky still, but it's more like Frasier where you're annoyed with him. (laughs) Uh, but But in these movies, he's doing stuff and like, it almost seems like the people in the movie are kind of like, you're all right, Poirot, you're, you're not, you're not too bad. Yeah, and I I think that's a great characterization. And Branagh is a director who I really like his his sensibilities. And sometimes, well, not even sometimes, often, almost always, I'm going to just keep escalating that statement. (laughs) He is overindulgent, but a lot of the time that works for me. His Shakespeare work, I think especially, is great for that. The fact that he was like, I'm just going to make a four-hour Hamlet movie because I'm going to film exactly (laughs) what the play is. It rocks. I also appreciate that for these films, Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile, and soon, Haunting in Venice, he shot them on 65mm large format film. The way they look, when that uh, technique can peek through behind the insane green screen, they look really good, actually. There are Moments, especially in uh, Death on the Nile, I feel like, where half the time the surroundings look like crazy CGI, and then the other half of the time I'm... I was pretty blown away by how rich they were able to film around this Nile setting. Murder on the Orient Express, I think, is a lot more consistent looking, but at the same time, I feel like it's very cold and very clinical from a cinematography perspective. Part of that denotes the difference in tones between the two stories, so Mm. it's not that I don't think it's intentional, but to me, it also made it a little bit harder for me to get engaged as much with Murder on the Orient Express, a story I 
really do not care for and I don't understand why it's so famous except for the fact that the ending the first time you read it you're like that's pretty cool and then you think about it and you're like <laughs> maybe it's not as cool as I think it is oh man well I really I know we are we're not there yet but I really want to get it to that ending well, man that's I think we have to talk about the fact that I am shocked to report that I liked Death on the Nile way more than I liked Murder on the Orient Express, which is not at all what I thought was going to happen when we went into this franchise. I mean, me neither, but for, like, the regular sequel reasons, you know? Like, I was I was like, you know, they'll probably get worse as they go, as is a modern franchise that doesn't already have, like, a huge thing behind it. I have to agree with you. I was really back and forth on the Orient Express there, but Death on the Nile, I'm, like, kind of excited for a haunting in venice that's a weird thing for me to be excited about considering i am a week and a half into this world of agatha christie's screen adaptations and i'm like i'm pumped for us going to the movies part of the reason i'm excited so much for haunting in venice other than the fact that i'm unexpectedly charmed by these first two films is the fact that i'm excited once again about the cast Branagh understands that there is a base appeal in why don't we just get a bunch of stars up on screen and play house. Murder on the Orient Express has a significantly more talented and more charming cast than Death on the Nile. Death on the Nile has a notoriously cursed cast. It's a pretty <laughs> rough one. And I mean, like, there were there there are people in the Orient Express who, you know, you gotta tug your collar a little bit and suck air through your teeth about, but, dude, Death on the Nile is just, like, it must have been the perfect year for that movie to be cast, because since then, it's just been absolute chaos in, in that lineup. Had the pandemic not happened when it happened and that movie had come out when it was supposed to, it would have been in the clear. It would have just barely... <laughs> scooted in because russell brand is barely in that movie oh, enough for it yeah. to really make that much of a difference it's weird that he's still acting in movies frankly but people like leticia wright gal gadot and army hammer when that movie was made as far as everybody knew presumably that, that fine you know sure like nobody not? knew gotta say i'm gonna say it uh army hammer pretty good in that movie uh, Army Hammer's accent, less good in that movie. Less, less good, but, like, he is good. Damn it. Pretty surprised that he was kind of killing it in this. But then on the flip side, on Murder on the Orient Express, even though I do think that it is a worse movie, you've got, like I said, a much better cast. Well, the two notable exceptions to that are Johnny Depp. <laughs> Johnny Depp, I was going to say. And kind of only... Half an exception in this movie, Josh Gad, who I think is mostly tolerable in Murder on the Orient Express. I, I think we took a lot of our Josh Gad baggage, our gadage, however you want to pun that up, into Murder on the Orient Express because we were like, ah, got it. I know that name. I know that face. But he did a solid job, I will say. I, I did not, I was not too distracted by his presence. The problem is that. There's too many characters in Murder on the Orient Express, and there's too many big names in all of those characters that they that really the only people that get enough to do are Daisy Ridley, Leslie Odom Jr., mm. obviously Kenneth Branagh. I mean, Josh Gad gets more to do than Judy Dench or Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe, yeah. I was I was really excited for for them and they they really get silent. And I mean, like, I guess Olivia Coleman wasn't as huge as she is now no, when that movie not. came out, I suppose. But, like, I was looking forward to seeing more of her as well, and we did not get that. Penelope Cruz barely gets anything to do. The one standout that we thought was better than, like, 90% of the other actors in that movie, even though we didn't know who she was when we were watching the movie, she plays the Countess... Her name is Lucy Boynton, and I guess she was in Barbie. I'm sure she's one of the Barbies, but I looked her up lately. She was the girl in Sing Street, which I don't think you saw, but I was like, I oh, did it's not. the girl from Sing She's really good in Sing Street, so I was like, oh, it makes a lot of sense that she's good in this as well, even though she looks nothing like she mm. did in Sing Street. Yeah, she was doing a great job. You know, her character is like barely, I feel like, in the movie until a certain point, and then it's all at once. But the other 
person that we didn't really recognize but kind of fell in love with was Tom Bateman, who plays Book, Poirot's, like, little buddy, I guess. I, is I the don't best think way it's me, him. and I don't think it's kind of Seamus. I think that... What do you mean? Not that I did not enjoy him a great deal, but you fell in love with I... Book did book's my boy i'm a book boy what can i say it's just after these movies that's what i am are you a book worm is that what a you call yourselves he's great i love book and i will be looking out for tom bateman in other things i feel like you know maybe a little over the top but he i feel like if poirot is the straight man he is the one reacting for poirot a lot of the times and i i kind of loved his his role in these movies the last actor i will bring up i think before we transition into spoilers is Emma Mackey, who also in Barbie, and also similarly to Murder on the Orient Express with Lucy Boynton, we weren't really expecting much out of, but I did not know Emma Mackey other than the fact that she was in Sex Education, a show Mm -hmm. I don't watch on Netflix. And she was phenomenal. She was the best performance in the whole movie. To be fair, she was going up against a significantly less stacked cast than the first film. But... Death on the Nile, she steals every single scene that she's in. Definitely. I I would love to get into spoilers soon and and just kind of hop around because there are some crazy highlights from both of these movies, really, that I was not expecting. She is in those highlights for sure. Well, I think to wrap things up, I enjoyed these more than I thought I would. I wasn't crazy about Murder on the Orient Express. I probably wouldn't revisit it, but... If you were thinking about maybe catching up with these to go see Haunting in Venice, which I think looked, even before I watched these two, I thought that movie looked pretty good. I would watch both of these to catch up for Haunting in Venice because Death on the Nile, again, despite that cast, is really a good time. I agree. I agree with everything you just said. This is the most unlikely franchise that I have kind of gone all in for really being wary after the first movie but now i'm now i'm all about it so i i would probably recommend these weird movies to to anybody who is looking for like a fun i want to say like mystery style movie because mystery (laughs) seems like it's like you you can play along as we were talking about before and Agatha Christie's work, that's not always the case, and I feel like this, it's mystery style, you're kind of along for the ride, you're not expected to be in the know as much, I, I feel like, and, and sometimes it is fun in these movies to just be along for the ride like that. But why don't we go ahead and move on into spoilers for Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. I was expecting these movies also to be like four hours each for whatever reason, but they really kind of, they, they go and they They're don't stop. Under two hours, I think, it's which is kind of crazy. crazy. Even though once we get to Death on the Nile, we're kind of like jumping all over the place, time jump wise and and secret information that we don't know wise. They're kind of going from every angle. As long as you have time to do a little bit about Poirot's mustache sleep mask, that, <laughs> that's all that matters. Oh, dude, we were really giggling at that, but then that comes back later. He was drugged, Garrett. He didn't do that on purpose. That's true. That's true. Uh, can I really just lay it out there yes. real quick? Is it crazy that both of these stories, the red herring mystery is still kind of everyone had a hand in it a little bit? Very much less in the second one, where in Orient Express, literally everybody but Book, whose train it is, is like <laughs> in on the murder. I read Murder on the Orient Express when I was like 12 years old, and I hated it then, and I hate it now. <laughs> It was a really deflating moment, if I'm being honest, to be like, we got Jamie Tart at the center of a mystery that we don't even know about, and that is the key to the puzzle that I didn't even know we were trying to unlock. And then when we get there, and then it's like, big dramatic reveal, isn't that awesome? And I'm like, I don't know if I watched the wrong first half of the movie, if there's a director's cut where... They set up whatever weird Lindenberg baby kidnapping is the actual point of anything. But I I felt a little I felt a little disappointed, man. The only characters who I feel like you get enough backstory on to maybe kind of figure out what their sitch is are Leslie Odom Jr. and Daisy Ridley, who are, to be fair, the two characters that have the most screen time that are not Poro or mm-hmm. Luke. I hate it when he's sitting there and he goes, oh, also, you didn't know this, but I figured out that you are this person that we've never told the Uh audience even existed previously, but based on the fact that Poirot is possibly the greatest detective in the world, (laughs) we will identify you as such. And 
Branagh at least does it with a little bit more panache than the freaking parlor drama that Agatha Christie is. <laughs> there's like the Vegas stepping stuff. We get like, oh, there's a smudge on a luggage tag that has a name that's changed. But the name that's changed that you can kind of see is a name we don't know yet. And a name that's associated with a case that we don't know about. And this case involves literally everybody. And we didn't know that at all because half of them are pretending to be somebody else. I feel like I was supposed to be impressed and I was not. At the moment of like, oh, Willem Dafoe's not actually a Nazi reveal. And I was like, wait, okay, that's actually kind of fun. We've got some secret identities going on here. But then that also ultimately doesn't really lead much anywhere until we also learn that he's involved with 10 other characters that were never on screen. In a vacuum, that's maybe the best scene in the movie, just because Willem Dafoe gets to actually act for one scene. There's twists and turns that I could actually follow. I agree, they don't go anywhere, really. But it is engaging as it's happening, Similarly, Michelle Pfeiffer, through the whole movie, engaging as it's happening, and is the big centerpiece of the whole mystery, but at the same time, eh? She was really chewing up the scenery out there, and I know it's it's a lot of fun, it's an old mystery story, it's supposed to be, like, really the attitude I was going into with these movies is, like, what if the real-life Kenneth Branagh hosted a murder mystery party, invited every famous person he knows, and didn't really do the research on if any of his friends are problematic yet, and everybody showed up, and they're all in character, and it's all a big fun time, and it kind of is, because I don't remember pretty much anybody's name but Poirot and Book, and we just call them by their real actor names. Mm-hmm. But she was just kind of, Michelle Pfeiffer just wasn't really hit it for me. I I wanted it to be the overacty kind of murder mystery party idea I had in my head. But then when it got to her, I just, it was not, it was not clicking for me for some reason. The problem with Murder on the Orient Express is it's not fun, nor is it good enough at investing me in any of the individual characters to be actually engaging as a story. Death on the Nile, on the other hand, is both, both fun and and told from a much more personal perspective. I think that we get a lot more... I mean, even if you just look at the opening scene of Death on the Nile, where you have this like weird, very centered on the interpersonal drama between Gal Gadot, Army Hammer, and Emma Mackey, and this like weird, super-sexually charged political jazz club in the 30s, which is a really cool decision. I understand that that is... A change from the book that they, that oh. the characters are not jazz musicians. And there's not like jazz is not a part of it, which I loved that they had this 30s jazz music playing throughout the whole movie. Really, for me, Death on the Nile. I'm gonna posit something to you. Okay. On the one hand, I think Death on the Nile would be better if this role were cast with a better actor. However, I just don't know if there is an actor better suited to this role than Gal Gadot. She's not a good actor. The thing that you and I kept talking about, she has no screen presence. She has no weight behind her. But she is strikingly beautiful and fits the role from a objective perspective, even if she's not able to fill it very well with her acting potential. And I, I couldn't think of an actor that I would rather slot in for her, really. Because, yeah, we, we were really just kind of going in blind, especially for the second movie, because you had never read death on the nile so we were just like who's gonna get it who's getting capped out here and her getting shot through the head like 35 or 40 minutes into this movie i i'm fine with that i guess that was another thing about in death on the nile they sprinkle in a little bit more of the clues and the mystery we we learn about why Poirot runs into book on the pyramids which i think is an interesting thing that ties back into the weird time jumps and circumstances in which Poirot is just on this new mystery. Mm -hmm. Even after the fake out of the end of <laughs> Orient Express, where they're like, you're needed in Egypt, sir. And he's like, get the car. We will go now. Like, I thought we were really just jumping right in. But then they're like, oh, I just got back from Egypt. Secret mission revealed in, you know, the third act. Annette Benning hired me. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All leading up to, like, multiple instances of, like, oh, the rock falling and almost crushing Gal Gadot and Army Hammer and the secret gunman who, oh, tragically shoots Book through the throat, like, absolutely kills him instantly. So sad. I was so sad. I was hoping he was going to be in Venice. But it's, it's a lot of little clues that build up to, once again, in the big reveal, it's like, 
we all kind of had separate grudges and stuff that we were working through. And Book secretly steals the giant diamond necklace and we're mm-hmm. supposed to think for a while that that's like part of the mystery and there's a lot of red herrings that ultimately again lead to oh that trail you've been chasing is four different trails and they don't really connect and everyone's in on it i was a little disappointed again lesser so i thought it was a, a little more fun and done a little better you know he locked he locks them all in the ship parlor at one point with a gun <laughs> i'm he likes to hold his parlor at gunpoint doesn't he that poirot well there's that great shot in Murder on the Orient Express it's Ooh, looking at yeah. him under the train and it's just him holding the gun. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty badass. Like, he's he's a cute boy. Like, he's, like, kicking his little feet laughing at Charles Dickens, but he's also, like, a badass. It's crazy. The end of Death on the Nile, I think the fact that it's more theatrical, the fact that it's more dramatic, the fact that it ends in a murder-suicide of two lovers who are mm. so mortified at the idea of being separated that Emma Mackie chooses to take her and Army Hammer's lives. That is also an inherently more satisfying conclusion that I will let you all go because justice was served. I mean, that is an uh, interesting element of Murder on the Orient Express, but... I said this to you after we wrapped. The concept of the world's greatest detective single-handedly seeing every single piece of evidence in a murder case and deciding himself that he doesn't have to turn anybody in to serve justice that should be the third movie that should be the third arc that Poirot mm-hmm. goes through in this franchise and they lay it down right away so that he's like I'm quite possibly the greatest detective in the world and then he say what you will about his results on the murder of the Orient Express but they were stellar for a detective I guess well and it's also tricky because murder on the Orient Express is certainly the most iconic Poirot story is probably the most mm-hmm. iconic Agatha Christie story generally. In today's day and age, you're going to make something like that. You've got to start with the big one you and start then strong. work your way out. It's not like it's the first Poirot story as it was written. It's the first Poirot story as it was reimagined by Kenneth Branagh. I simultaneously do and do not hold that against him because he's trying to do what he's trying to do. And it worked for him, but I agreed. God help me, I'm super excited for Haunting in Venice. I mean, I I know even less about that one than I did about the Orient Express, but my expectations are really high. I guess my expectations were higher before Book got shot through the neck and died and mummified <laughs> before the end of that movie. But like, you know, Jamie Tart went out for the Book role, right? And they were like, you didn't get it, but you can be the guy whose child gets murdered. Is that Was that your theory as well? I hadn't thought about it that way, but that seems right. You got the young, good-looking, plucky Brit who is, you know, the sidekick. I could totally see Oh, yeah, and he's a little F-boy, if you will. Oh, yeah, he is definitely... My, the F stands for frat, obviously. <laughs> of course, you know, they needed somebody, Book, a trained guy, to lay down the track, if you know what I mean, you know? He's, he's really gotta be uh, jumping around bed. They do do that one shot that kind of implies some some stuff with the train going into the tunnel which like north by northwest style which yeah a little bit of imagery <laughs> we were gearing up in the first act where you'd express like everybody's kind of horny for each other this is weird but then oh then it's like, such a left turn well whatever lack of horniness the second half of murder on the Orient express exhibits is more than made up for by how extraordinarily horny Death on the Nile is. <laughs> oh, right right from the jazz club scene. There are two different, like, grinding on the floor style dances that they are getting down to at the jazz club. Army Hammer is going crazy in that scene. I have a feeling from the trailer of Haunting in Venice, the horniness factor is about to plummet once we get to Venice. I mean, we barely talked about Poirot almost, you know... Gets a new woman after his dead wife. Oh, oh. yeah, because he shaves his. We yeah, didn't even dude. Talk about... Oh, the World War One oh, intro God. scene, dude. Oh my god, that was the weirdest shot because that was the real intro of Death on the Nile before the Jazz Club, yeah. right? Yeah, I don't know if that's his backstory in the books. It certainly is not mentioned in any of the Hercule stories that I have read. That. Apparently his mustache grew through scar tissue, which doesn't happen. I mean, That's not how scars <laughs> work. But yeah, he got his half of his face like torn apart by a shell in the trenches in Belgium in like 1914 or whatever. I like the idea with how much Poirot's 
character is about like balance and his need for balance with half of his face scarred he grew something that he could fine-tune to perfectly balance uh, mm-hmm. like you know all that stuff but it was insane to see that like that's the intro him turning over in his hospital bed to see his then living wife and <laughs> my alive wife <laughs> and then he later reveals in a moment of uh being drugged that she was killed in a mortar shell attack on the train that she was traveling in throughout Europe to like help him or to go see him for Christmas. To, oh yeah, to go see him for Christmas. Oh, honestly, tragic. He he has Kenneth Branagh has a couple moments with, like sad boy Poirot that it, it is like legit, and that's one of them. I love it when he gets to be, especially Death on the Nile. He gets to be a lot more human. There's a great scene where he and Book are just he's just teasing Book about having a crush on Letitia. Yeah, right? yeah. I loved their friendship, past tense, because I am extra sad now. Well, Book Senior, you're calling your baby shot going to be in <laughs> Noah Ned Benning in, in uh, Haunting in Venice. Book Senior. Book turned into a little bit of a villain. He was maybe going to let a murder happen and not get solved. Poirot was like, you're still my boy. Like, as he was dying, he was like, don't worry, you're still my uh, boy. <laughs> I will mummify you with the others. Don't worry. <laughs> we will oh, put you so in the <laughs> You are quite possibly... The best friend in the world, and then that's what they should have said. That's what they should have said. Oh, dude, I'm sad. Maybe the ghost of Book will be in Haunting Venice. (laughs) Wouldn't that be insane? Seamus, as we're gonna be the only two people in that IMAX theater, I will stand up and scream if that happens. But I think we could talk more about these movies. There are certainly parts that we didn't touch on, but it is time to move on to our pop culture reference. I think Seamus. Let's do it. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about Shrek Retold. In 2014, Wisconsin-based YouTuber and founder of 3GI Studios, Grant Dufferin, got together with some friends to create Shrekfest. Inspired by a Facebook event they were disappointed to find was fake, the first festival celebration of the Shrek franchise was hosted in Madison, Wisconsin. As Shrekfest became a viral sensation and grew in popularity, 3GI announced the creation of a project called Shrek Retold. Shrek Retold would be a recreation of the original Shrek movie, only chopped up into hundreds of snippets assigned to different artists. On November 29th, 2018, Shrek Retold hit the internet. In the end, over 200 people contributed to the film, and it gained a massive cult following and meme status. It was also met with a good amount of critical acclaim, with its bizarre YouTube poop sensibility being celebrated by media outlets such as the AV Club, Funny or Die, and Vice. Even Hollywood filmmakers have sung its praises, such as Jump Street and Lego Movie co-director Phil Lord and Mitchells vs. the Machines director Mike Rianda. The 2019 April Fool's Day video teased an announcement of Shrek 2 Retold, which went from prank to reality at that year's Shrekfest, when Shrek 2 Retold was officially announced. Shrekfest moved from Madison to Milwaukee following the COVID-19 pandemic, and Shrekfest 2023 concluded on September 3rd with the world premiere of Shrek 2 Retold at Milwaukee's historic Oriental Theater. Now, this is a project, the Shrek Retold is a project that I've heard about for years now, and I've never actually seen, I guess, either of them at this point, but I've always been so curious. I, I love the idea of taking what is essentially the original meme of of our generation and like kind of plussing it up in the weirdest way possible i know you gareth strother you have <laughs> we are a recent attendee at Shrekfest this year as previously stated <laughs> yes i was an official Shrekfest attendee this year and uh maniac i had never been before i was only there for like half an hour i stayed for some of the ska bands set and I didn't get any green beer, I didn't get any green kettle corn, I did not eat an onion, I did not dress up as Lord Farquaad, but it was kind of nice, it was surprisingly wholesome how much people were just there to have fun and be into Shrek, and it's obviously, it's great for us because it's a, it's a local thing that has grown into a much larger thing, and we have friends that have contributed to both Shrek Retold films, and I, like you, have never sat down and watched Shrek Retold, but I have seen snippets, especially when I was an RA, you would see a lot of residents would end up watching it in the common room. (laughs) 
I mean, that sounds like a really fun thing to sit down with some friends and just go through like that. I, I assume you, like me, have seen the original Shrek about 100,000 times since your childhood. I've seen Shrek 2 more times because it is it's the gold standard. One but... of the best animated movies of all time, if not the best animated movie of all time. Toy Story 2 would like a word, but... Okay, alright, that's fair, that's fair. Shrek but... 2 is, it is certainly up there, I think, if I'm being, it's kind of crazy. The way you've described it actually kind of sounds like a lot of fun, and I, I would check that out, especially if something like Shrek the Third retold was mm-hmm. ever announced, the worst movie in the Shrek franchise. I uh-huh. think that would be the ultimate revisit. But why don't we go ahead and wrap today's episode up with a saving of the rec center. Let's do it, Donkey. Donkey. Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, what do you got for me this week? I'm coming out of left field here, Seamus. I've got a weird one for you. But last night, on a whim, I rewatched a movie that I was pretty lukewarm on on release. I thought it was cute, but I thought it was trite and a little bit saccharine. I had not seen it in the eight years since. But when I tell you that Ridley Scott's The Martian is a really good movie, I am as surprised to say that as you maybe <laughs> are to hear it. I don't, I don't know, man. I, I only saw it the one time when it came out, and I was I was having a good time with that movie. I don't know. I Matt Damon kind of gets me. You know, Gambino's there. He does his, you know, uh, Apollo 13 thing for a minute. I, I like that movie. I mean, it's not that I didn't like it it's just that i didn't see the hype it has aged miraculously well one just an effects film that you could see the Mm. budget where the budget went into the effects is really appreciated also frankly it's messaging about like well if if i could change you could change (laughs) we all could change you know it's like it's one world we're all people and we can all rally around like one man who bring him home Seamus. one man lost in space garrett it's endearing damn it i Launching, i will not lie to you Seamus Connolly. i cried last night watching the Martian. wow i think i need to revisit it i was a fan when i saw it but your double endorsement and your strother tears i think are gonna bring me back to the martian but what do you got for us this week well, I've got, uh, you know, we talked a lot about PS Plus before, but I've got a sleeper on the service right now that, I mean, you probably actually heard about this quite a bit when it got on the service because people were pretty excited about it. The Artful Escape, Garrett. Mm. Do you know of it? I saw the guy on the PS Plus video. I watched PlayStation Grenade. What's up? I watch him every <laughs> month and I see, he mentioned it. I, that's what I got for you. Well, did he mention the cast of this game? It's a very, you know, very tasteful 2.5D style kind of side-scrollery gameplay. But the cast includes Lena Hedy. Is that how you say her name? From Game of Thrones? Hedy or Hedy, I'm not sure. Uh, Mark Strong, Jason Schwartzman, and Carl Weathers are all big time up in this game. And it's it's a short Really fun little indie experience. Annapurna Interactive, of course. They always drop off some good indie-style stuff. You and I both like Maquette. Yes, exactly. You know, they they come out with some pretty good stuff. But this is just like a very straightforward story game about absolutely wild stallions, Bill and Ted-style shredding a cosmic guitar. And I was a big, big fan of this game. The soundtrack, obviously, it's a very musical kind of game, but it is the most delightful. Like, when I say Wild Stallions, Garrett, you have to understand how wild the Stallions are. I very much recommend you specifically play it. There are so many obvious nods, things like Bill and Ted and and things where people are kind of thrust into a cosmic adventure, as it were, and I I think that, well, you maybe still have access to whatever PlayStation Plus tier you have at the moment before you cancel it, I would recommend you check this out, because, like I said, nice and short, really touching, and some of the most simple, satisfying gameplay I've, I've had in a long time. 
Well, you've really sold me in about the three minutes you've been talking about it. Go down. You go download it. But I think that that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. You can find us on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at PCR underscore podcast. You can email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and engage with us on any kind of internet platform. It really helps us out. Next week, as previously advertised, we will be covering A Haunting in Venice. Seamus, you're excited. I'm excited. I can't believe either of us are excited. But Michelle Yeoh is going to be there. I'm excited about that. Tita Faye's up in the building. Who knows what that's going to be like? All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. And remember, have your amigos adios and neutered.